we're going to be talking about a young man in Mark 9. If you'll go to chapter 9 of Mark, in a minute, we're going to start with uh, verse 14. We're going to meet a young man. Now, uh, what, what I want us to think about here is the truth, okay? If you're like me, there are times in my life when I'm so immersed in the things I'm going through and doing and trying to accomplish that my faith is kind of on cruise control. Do you ever do that? We shouldn't, but I often do that. The truth is that there is never a time when I don't need God. But I can easily spend some time at least, if not for some of us, most of my time, unconscious of that need. Now, into every life when that happens, into all of our lives, it would seem, come times or situations that will strip us of our sense of self-sufficiency. Okay, now, if, if you're not aware of what I'm talking about, um, stay tuned, okay, because that's probably going to happen, all right? Into all of our lives come these things that rock us to our core and challenge our sense of self-sufficiency. And I, I once again, hopefully then, at least by then, will reconnect and say, okay, God, I know you're there. I know you've been there all along. I'm sorry I haven't connected with you lately. And we respond in faith. The truth is, um, there those times cause us, or they should cause us to realize that we've got nothing or no one else on which to rely except God. So we cry out for his help. In those moments, we discover what real faith kind of is, at least in that moment. Okay? Now, I'm not talking here about saving faith. We'll talk about that at some point. I'm talking about temporal faith, the kind of faith that gets me through things. All right? Now, let me set up a little bit in, uh, from our study. We're going to, for the next oh, 12 or 13 weeks or so, leading up to Easter and then on the other side of Easter, we're going to talk about faith from the Gospels. We'll, we'll spend a little while in, in Mark, and then we'll spend a little while in Luke, looking at stories of people who responded to God by faith and kind of what we can learn from those things. Um, one of the things I think you might enjoy, if you would, the Gospel of Mark, sometimes I will, if, um, if I'm involved in helping somebody find Christ, um, I will... Um, use Mark as kind of, why don't you read the Gospel of Mark first, because it's short, it's only 16 chapters, um, uh, you can kind of get uh, the, uh, the Gospel in a hurry, you know, if, if you, um, uh, Walter knows, we were talking about that this morning, I'm not a speed reader, so I kind of need, I need it encapsulated, right, and uh, so that's a good way to read through the Gospels quickly, it picks up where Jesus, he doesn't do the birth narratives or any of that, it picks up where Jesus is baptized and goes forward and through the, through the resurrection. So, but it might be a good, a good plan for you as you read through the Gospel of Mark over the next couple of weeks to look for, okay, look for instances where people are witnesses of who he is. There are a lot of people that come forward, like in a courtroom, to bear witness of who Jesus is, beginning with the very first chapter. Certainly in the first chapter, you meet, uh, we meet John the Baptist, who bears witness that he is who, he claimed, who he's going to claim to be. So it, that might be a good, good kind of thing to have in the back of your mind as you read the Gospel of Mark. But there are three themes I want you to think about as well. First of all, uh, one of the themes that's overriding, and it's kind of fascinating to me, although I don't want you to read this and have nightmares about it, but um, there is a theme 
that, that talks in Mark that talks a lot about Jesus' authority over evil spirits. We're going to actually encounter one of those today, where he's got this authority over demonic spirits. It, it's kind of wonderful to behold. Uh, don't let it scare you, but be aware of it as you read through the Gospel of Mark. A second theme, and I find it really intriguing that's woven through there, is the failure in many ways of Jesus' disciples to actually see or trust or respond to him by faith. It's very interesting that those who spend the most time with him often get the answers wrong. And it's really borne out in the Gospel of Mark. Um, um, you know, Peter gives this great testimony uh, of who Jesus is. And in the next scene, Jesus is talking about his death, burial, and resurrection. And Peter says, no, no, you're not going to do that. And um, it gets so bad that Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan, and he's looking at Peter. Okay? So it's funny, it's very interesting how uh, when they get, they'll get a half a dozen things right, and then the next half a dozen they'll get wrong. So the, one of the themes you might look for is the, um, the, the tendency for the disciples' trust uh, to fail. Well, and then the third theme, and it'll be one that we pick up on today, kind of this interwoven theme, is the faith of people who are needy and outcast who come to Jesus. It's absolutely beautiful. Let me give you two or three instances. Um, um, people are all the time coming to him in the Gospel of Mark who are at the end of their rope in one way or another, and they express a pretty deep faith born out of a deep need. They're marginalized people like the tax collectors and sinners that are identified there who come to him by faith. There's a woman whose medical condition has made her an unclean social outcast because she couldn't be healed, um, and, and yet she thinks she can be healed and is so just by touching Jesus' garment. There's a Syrophoenician woman or, or someone that you might recognize that's a non-Israelite woman in there who, who uh, replies to Jesus' hard sayings to her with a persistent faith, and he meets her need. So it's interesting how some of these marginalized or disenfranchised people have a, have a tendency to respond better in faith out of their deep need than even the disciples do. It's kind of uncanny. All right? Now, let me stop for a minute. Bob, I'm going to have you go to verse 14, but hold on just a second. Is there anybody brand new that are visiting today that we've got to say hello to? You thought you, thought you were going to get, a, get away with not having to deal with that today, didn't you? Do you have friends over here? Are they saying, no, 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 don't do that. Terry, who's at your table? Would you introduce them? Ross and Cheryl, welcome. So good to have you guys here today. And if you're friends with the Chapmans, you must be pretty good people. <laughs> Anybody else new we ought to say hello to? Okay. I talked to a couple back here that came Two weeks in a row, and I'm thinking, oh, well, boy, they, they're gluttons for punishment. So, all right, here we go. Mark 9, 14, 15, and 16, Bob. Context of this is Jesus and the three of the inner circle of the disciples, okay, who are, can you name them? The inner circle? Peter, James, and John, okay. 
they have been up on the mountaintop, and Jesus is transfigured there. If you want to read the first verses of chapter 9, you'll read all about that. It's kind of a wonderful experience, uh, a kind of a scary experience for the disciples that went with them in some ways too. But uh, uh, they come down from that mountaintop experience, and here's what they encounter. Um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about some of that. Uh, since Jesus has been absent, okay, since he's been absent from the scene, the scribes here or the teachers or, or, or uh, those that are kind of uh, trying, to, trying to have been trying to trip him up uh, now turn and begin to challenge his disciples. So he comes down from the mountain and the nine that weren't with him are kind of pulling their hair out because the scribes or the teachers of the law are trying to catch them in something that they can indict them for, just like they've kind of been um, um, doing that with Jesus, even though they couldn't find him, they're, they're uh, kind of doing that with his disciples. Now, I had an um, experience over the weekend. We were Friday night in Missouri, and, um, and uh, our sister-in-law has, Rhonda's sister, my sister-in-law, sorry, has a new dog, okay? All right? White dog, white shedding dog, <laughs> long-haired white shedding dog. Okay, that, that's just friendly white long-haired shedding dog. Okay, who really liked me? And okay, you ready for the name of the dog? Don't tell our pastor this. Marty was the name of the dog. Okay. Guess what? If I were to put a verb to how Marty reacted to my presence in his home, it would be this. He dogged me the whole time I was there. You know the term? You know the term? The scribes here in chapter 14 are dogging the disciples. They've been dogging the master. Now they're dogging his disciples, okay? Um, don't tell, if you see Phil Rowena, don't tell them I don't like their dog. That's not the case, okay? He was a very nice dog. He didn't bark at me a whole lot. He just followed me everywhere I went and wanted to sit with me and get long white hair on me. So, yeah. Now, look, turn back a couple of pages to 322. Somebody read 322. We're going to be all over the Gospel of Mark, so kind of be ready for that. Somebody read, it says 333 in your outline, but it's not. 322. Okay, go keep going, Steve. What a conclusion that by the power of devil, he's driving out the devil. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Okay, okay. Now, what's going on here is what the press do to a political candidate or certainly to a politician. They're just waiting for him to say something or do something that they can write in the paper, right? Well, these guys are waiting for, him, for Jesus to say or do something that they can indict him for and eventually do away with him. And, and that's what, what they are working on his entire public ministry. So, it's interesting here that the, uh, Jesus and the three disciples from the inner circle come down from the mountain. And I want you to catch here in verse 15 what catches their attention. What is it? What draws them? What is it? 
It's him himself. It's, it's, there's really nothing he's doing. Just merely his presence in that place draws them to him. It's kind of wonderful. Uh, look, flip over to chapter 16, and this is a post-resurrection thing. Um, it actually is around the first Easter Sunday. I'm going to go to chapter 16. And we're going to read verse 15 and 16. Uh, sorry, verse 5 and 6. 16, verse 5 and 6. Entering the tomb, it's the women who've come to the tomb early on Sunday morning. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. Okay, now, the same word is used here in Mark 9 that they just saw him, and they were amazed, and they were drawn to him. I'm sure that eventually there was something they wanted from him. But what we've got to kind of deal with just for a second here is that the word here is identified as being overcome with wonder. It's, the word is only used in the Gospel of Mark, and it's used four times, and we just now looked at half of them. What were they so overwhelmed with wonder about? Just his presence. Now, that just caused me to stop for a minute and think, what meaning does this need to have for me? Am I impressed? Am I drawn just by his presence in my life? I should be. I should be. Remember, Jacob uh, is running from the family, running certainly from... Uh, Esau's wrath and he ends up worshiping God in the middle of kind of the wilderness on the way to, to his uncle's place and he says and he, he builds an altar there because he says you know God was here and I didn't even recognize him surely the Lord was in, his place, in this place he says occasionally I need to recognize his presence in my life and stop with my jaw dropped Have you had a wow moment lately with God? Where you're just literally amazed at His presence. My guess is, if you'll watch for it, you will. If you have faithful eyes to see, you will. I think it's got some meaning for me. It's interesting, so Jesus comes down off of the mountain. He's got the three other disciples with Him, the three kind of in the inner circle. And, and what does he find there? He finds the uh, teachers of the law, the scribes that are arguing with his disciples about something. He's not really sure what that is yet. So he walks in, and the word that I want you to use here is he inserts himself into the controversy. He inserts himself into the controversy. Now, don't you wish that more of the things that you and I read about in the newspaper, that Jesus would insert himself into those controversies? But in, I, I love the fact that he did this here. He, um, you know, I, I realize that places where I work, I realize that uh, I, not everybody needs my opinion on everything. So I don't share my opinion about everything. Uh, some, some, if two people are in the hallway kind of arguing about something, I'm probably going to whistle as I go by, okay? <whistles> you know, I want to get involved in this. But Jesus inserted himself into their controversy. 
I, I, I love that about him here. But interestingly, when he says, what are you guys arguing about? It's not the disciples who respond, and it's not the scribes who respond, but it's a guy that's kind of at the middle of this whole thing who has the most at stake to gain or to lose. It's a father who actually answers him. Let's look at his answer. Bob, can I come back to you and pick you, have you pick it up in 17 and go to 22? Okay, the man, the father with this son who's got this problem is now taking center stage. I think it's funny that you've got these three disciples who've been on the Mount of Transfiguration. They've got all kinds of stuff to talk about, about what they just saw. And, uh, and certainly Jesus always has something good to say. But who's taking center stage? It's a man with a need. His son has a need. So this father, uh, father takes center stage here. And he addresses Jesus in terms of respect. You catch that? Teacher, master, okay? There's respect here. If the scribes are not respecting him, this man certainly is. He's at the end of his rope is one of the reasons, by the way. So he addresses Jesus here and answers the question. Now, what you and I need to probably recognize here, and I want us to look at a couple other places, this young man's condition, had we believe, but it's going to be pretty clear as we see it kind of work out, had uh, this man's condition had a demonic origin. That's what to put in there. And I want us to take a, a minute here and look at a couple other, other passages where it uses a similar word to describe what this guy's going through um, besides what's here. Um, but in the, in the same book, so we can kind of compare it. Uh, John, are you, do you mind to go to 424? Go to 424. Estella, would you go to 17 and read 15 and then 18? Are you talking about Matthew or are you talking Mark. Mark? Uh, you know what? I am talking about Matthew. Sorry. I'm talking about Matthew. Sorry about that. John, Matthew 424 and Matthew 17, 15, and then scoot down to 18. Okay? Are you there, John? Great. The word here for seizures in 424 is a similar, it's the idea that's expressed here in Mark 9. It literally is, if you look at the definition of the, of the Greek word, you'll get the, the word moonstruck. Moonstruck. Okay? Now, Estella, you mind to read Matthew um, 
17 and verse 15 and then verse 18. Now, that's a, what Estella just read is a parallel telling of the same story that we're in today in Mark over in Matthew. And it's interesting that, that um, there's a couple of places where it will talk about epilepsy here or seizures. I asked Rhonda yesterday when I was doing some work on this, I said, okay, tell me a little bit about what you know about epilepsy. And it's interesting, there's not a whole lot to be known. There, there are several versions of epilepsy. There, there are, um, and there's not one, it sounds like to me from what you were telling me yesterday, there's not one um, particular uh, answer for what causes all that, the seizures, and it's clearly what's going on here. But what we need to understand here is that for whatever was going on in this young man's life and had been for a while, it might have had epileptic type um, reactions, but this was clearly a demonic issue. Clearly, because of the way we see it being uh, solved here or healed. Today, there's still little, un little known. Uh, it's really, if you've got somebody in your life or maybe you've had some struggle with seizures, um, it's kind of hard to know, to know what to do. In this case, we're going to see a similar reaction to an epileptic seizure, but Jesus is going to to deal with it as a demonic issue and solve it. That doesn't mean that people today have, um, who have that kind of seizure are demonic people. Not at all. But I want us to see here what the results are in verse 18 of this really sudden and violent attack. Describe it. See it. And then describe it. What is verse, what's going on in verse 18? Back in 9. Thrown to the ground, foaming at the mouth, he becomes rigid, stiff, gnashes his teeth. Okay, that sounds like the kind of seizure that you may have witnessed with somebody in your life, or or uh, somebody you've encountered. Okay, there's kind of this sudden attack. Now, in verse 19, Jesus says something that I've always had trouble understanding. He, he um, uh, the problem is the dad says, my son has this problem. And the disciples couldn't do anything about it. Your disciples couldn't do anything about it. And Jesus' response in red in verse 19 is what? Oh, you unbelieving people. Now, it's interesting here. I've got to deal with it a little bit. And what little research I've done on this points back to Moses coming down from the mountain when he received the Ten Commandments. What did he find? He found people worshiping a cow. Remember that? And he said some similar things. You can read about that in Exodus 32. Both Moses and Jesus have encountered this kind of unbelief. And it raises the question for me, and I want you to go with me to chapter 4, verse 40. It raises the question for me, what makes God impatient? Unbelief. This is the only answer I can come up with. Look at 440. Same, same book. Mark 40. Okay. Here it is. And he said, this is in the middle of the storm. Jesus has just calmed the sea. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? 
it seems like what kind of got Jesus' attention here is that he's amazed. You remember we're talking about people being amazed at him, just his presence. He's amazed, but not in a good way. He's amazed in a negative way at their lack of faith. Have I been with you this long and you don't know what to do here? Now we're going to talk about how what kind of authority and, and uh, skills he has given them to handle this kind of thing, and they still didn't accomplish it. Now, verse 20, the young man is seized, all right? And I, I like using that word here. It's, here's the description. They brought the boy to him, Jesus. When he saw him, another, another reference to Jesus there, it's capital H, immediately the spirit threw him into convulsion. Falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. Okay, you see that? My question is, why do you think the young man was seized at this particular time? And I want you to go wet back with me to Mark 1, and we'll also go to Mark 5. And I want you to see some other encounters that Jesus had with demons or de persons with some demonic activity in their lives. Look at chapter 1, verse 23. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. By the way, when you're looking for witnesses to who Jesus is, here's the devil talking. He knows exactly who he is. Look at chapter 5. We're going to go to 5, verse 7. And shouting with a loud voice, this is uh, the Gerizim demoniac, I believe, yeah. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. Now, sometimes people will ask, especially in a situation like we're dealing with in Mark 9, where there's, cl there's clearly some things going on there that, that you and I might say have some kind of a medical explanation in our day. So why was it demonic then and is medical now, you know? What I want to submit to you, based on what I read there in Mark 1 and again in Mark 5 and now here in Mark 9, why is there so much demonic activity in the New Testament and then we don't see as much of it now? That doesn't mean that that's not possible now, I don't believe. But I want you to consider this. Based on what you and I just now read in chapter 1 and chapter 5, there's something going on during the three years that Jesus was in his public ministry that's not going on now. The walking, living, breathing Son of God was walking the planet. And it was ticking the devil off big time. Is that a fair statement? Do you notice here when Jesus encounters any of these people who have some kind of demonic activity in their lives, the devil is trying to tear people up. And Jesus is showing up, and, he's, and every time the demon within the person will say, would you leave me alone? I love it. Do you know what John says later on in his, one of his epistles? He says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We're on the winning side here. So in this case, all right, in this case, 
the boys' demons knew who they were dealing with. You could argue they had greater faith than anybody on the scene save Jesus himself. So, Jesus notices this. Obviously, everybody in the crowd notices this young man being tormented. And in verse 21, I just made the comment here that this boy's life has been dominated by this condition, as has the father's, probably most of his young life. And Jesus asked an interesting question. The boy is laying on the ground and he's, he's rolling and he's stiff. And Jesus says, how long has this been going on? I, I, I find that a really interesting question. I don't know what to do with that question. How long has this been going on? It's almost a funny question in context. But he doesn't stop there, does he? And you love him for it. The father's response is one of the greatest responses of faith in the New Testament, I believe. Somebody read to us verse 22. There are two things that he says here. The first one is right here in verse 22. The father's response indicates the kind of doubt that comes from disappointment. Lots and lots of repeated disappointment. This is natural. And he uses a phrase that I guarantee you, you've used at some point in your life, if only, if only. I'm going to call that the awesome if. If only. If only I had done this, or if only I hadn't done this, or if only God had showed up then. Remember Mary and Martha asked the same question. If, if only. This is that if only. And Jesus is going to deal with it. It's the doubt that comes from chronic disappointment. But what I want you to notice in verse 22 is even though the Father has had this chronic bout of disappointed disappointment his the doubt in his life comes from i've been disappointed i've been disappointed i've been disappointed again he still asks do you catch this if you can maybe you can help this okay let's read on all right let's read on we're going to go to verse 23 somebody read 23 down to 27 and then we'll end up The man has just said, if you can. And actually, Jesus repeats, I love this, Jesus repeats his words back to him. If you can. Maybe you want to track over the next little bit, maybe while we're doing this series at least. What words do you think Jesus would repeat back to you of your own? If you can. 
What you, if 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 he were if you were to encounter him today, what words of yours would he repeat back to you? The Lord's answer is beautiful. All things are possible to him who believe. And I, I've got to ask the question: Is is this weak faith? Is it uh, failing faith? I don't think so, because the Lord acts. And so he says, if you can, all things are possible to believe. And verse 24 is that second response that is so very important to us in building a foundation of faith for our lives. What does the man say in verse 24? It's a very famous thing he says. I do believe, believe. help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. I believe. He says, I believe, but you got to help me with my doubts. Do you notice that Jesus doesn't dismiss him here? All of us have been there. The, the case here, it's, it's the cry of a longing need that he responds to. His response is sincere. And Jesus' command is authoritative. Now, if you compare it to what he did, we read a little bit ago in, in chapter 1 and 125 where he cast a demon out of that particular fellow, what you're going to recognize here is that he uses a longer uh, statement, a longer directive to the demons than anywhere else in Mark. It's 16 words in the original language. It's only like four words in 125. Uh, that's very interesting to me. He kind of, kind of reads the demon's pedigree here. It says, get out of here. And in, in response, the power of Satan is broken. The power of Satan is broken. If you notice what happens, the young man falls to the ground. He stops seizing. He falls to the ground. He is so weak that they think he possibly uh, is dead. But how does Jesus prove that he's not dead? He takes him by the hand and helps him stand up. If you read on in verse 28 and 29, you recognize that those that are all around there begin to kind of say one thing after another they begin to kind of think about and deal with what exactly is happening here. And his disciples now are scratching their heads saying, okay, I know you can do that. Why couldn't we? And the truth is, if you read in chapter 3, he's given them the power and the authority to cast out demons. And for some reason they couldn't. And his answer here is, has something to do with prayer. And I want you to leave this at the bottom of your uh, outline today. The faith that believes is the faith that prays. The faith that believes is the faith that prays. Now, what I believe here is they probably had tried to act in their own power. Instead of saying, Jesus of Nazareth commands you, they probably said, Joe Jones commands you. I Bartholomew command you, all right? He'd given him that power, but in his own name. So it's the issue of the issue here is prayer. They had the authority, but it wasn't my authority that made the difference, was it? It was his. So here's how I want us to start this series. I want you to think about the, the main struggle in your life right now. What is it? That's rocking your faith. What is it that you have said a lot lately, if only? 
My question is this, and then I'm going to give you the appropriate answer. You ready? You got to love this kind of test. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? I love the nodding heads. I really love the nodding heads. What I want you to know is in the darkness of your faith challenge, in the dark, dark days of doubt, there is a two-word response that I want you to practice with me each of these next several weeks we're going to be together. You ready? It's very easy. And maybe you need to say it out loud several times a day or at least once a day as a statement of your own faith. Are you ready? The believing faith prays, right? Here's one way for you to pray. When you are nagged with whatever it is that's coming up in your life that you're struggling with, the if only in your life, I've got a two-word answer for it. You ready? I believe. Now, there may be days where you can barely eke that out. It may be, Estella, I believe, help my unbelief. But I want you to stop with those two words. Okay, Lord, I don't get it. I don't think I'm supposed to get it. I don't like this. I don't like what I'm going through. All of that. And then stop and say to, your, say to him, not to yourself, sorry. But I believe. I believe. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Here's your testimony. I believe.